a growing trend in storytelling is to begin with the ending. I don't know if you've noticed this. Not long ago, I was watching a movie, and it began with the, the hero being captured by the bad guy, and things were looking really bad and really bleak for him. And then suddenly, the movie leaps back in time. And the point of this storytelling technique is to get your attention and build tension and anticipation, uh, getting you really curious and, and getting you asking the question, how in the world did things get to this point? And so you watch the movie to get an answer to the question. But long before Hollywood, we actually see this style employed right here in Daniel chapter 4. It begins with the ending. And the chapter features characters we've come to know over these past few weeks as we've been exploring the book of Daniel. Uh, we, we've seen Daniel, who's been the, the, one of the heroes in this book, and we've seen Nebuchadnezzar, who's been the villain. In fact, he's been a megalomaniacal, evil, power-hungry tyrant, which is why the opening of chapter 4 is one of the most stunning moments in the entire Bible. So why don't you stand with me now as we read this together. It starts with the end of the story. And it's shocking because the words here are penned by none other than King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. I told them the to, to dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshar, after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head, as I lay in bed, were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. 
but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Belteshar, saw, and you, O Belteshar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you're able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshar answered and said, my lord... May the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will." And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. There may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing account. What an amazing story. And in response, all I can do right now is pray that you will humble us this morning. You may open our eyes and our ears, spiritually speaking, so that we may hear the message that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin. He writes this. He says, Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, if anyone was a poster child for pride, it was King Nebuchadnezzar. If there was anyone who was in a complete anti-God state of mind, it was him. Remember, this is the man who ravaged Jerusalem and the people of God, who plundered the sacred items from God's temple, putting them into the temple of his God as a way of saying that the Babylonian gods are superior to the God of Israel. He kidnaps the best and brightest of the Jews, including Daniel and his three friends, and forces them to serve him in Babylon. This was the man we saw who, though plagued with dreams from God back in chapter 2, a a dream that, that said that his kingdom would not endure and that God's kingdom is greater than the kingdoms of men, he nevertheless dug in his heels and constructed a monument a golden image proclaiming the endurance of Babylon and and, uh, his might and his rule, and he commanded that everybody agree with him and bow down to this image in a test of loyalty, lest they be thrown into a death oven and burned alive. And when three Jewish young men refused to bow before this image, this was the man who threw them into that fiery furnace, and he, is, he was so sadistic and twisted that he actually had a spot where he could, he could witness the burning as if it's entertainment. 
to, to watch the flesh melt from these men's bones. And if it had not been for God's miraculous rescue foiling the king's twisted hate, that would have happened. This was a man who loved himself, hated others, and most importantly, hated God. And, the, and he hated the suggestion that God was in control and he was not. And therefore, his words in verses 1 through 3 in the opening of this chapter are the last thing that anybody would expect. And so, the chapter begins with a shocking declaration, a shocking declaration. Verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So, he sends out this royal letter to the whole empire. It, was the, it would be the, the ancient world's equivalent to calling a press conference. He, he wants this to go out to everybody. And he says, peace be multiplied to you. Now, some might be suspicious of that, especially the people that he has conquered. This is the guy who's been known to toss people into ovens as a way of settling disputes. And he says, peace be multiplied to you. Yet his positive tone continues in verse 2. He says, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. Notice he calls him the most high God. That's a, uh, that's a name for God that is associated with God's absolute sovereignty and rule. He says, it's my good pleasure to, to show you these things. It's, it, it seemed good to me. It's, what, what gives him pleasure now is not to talk about himself. In the, in the past, his, his joy was found in puffing himself up and exalting himself and being at the center of everything. Now, he takes pleasure in exalting God. Now, notice also that Nebuchadnezzar is speaking now of God in a more personal, um, relational term. He, he's spoken of God in the past... But it's been distant. So, for example, in chapter 2, he refers to him as Daniel's God. Chapter 3, he refers to him as the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's a distance there. Now he says, though, I want to show you the signs and wonders he's done for me. Verse 3. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is amazing. Here, Nebuchadnezzar affirms the whole point of Daniel chapters 1 through 3. Everything that we've learned in Daniel so far has been pointing us to that truth. And, and that's the message that Nebuchadnezzar has constantly been resisting and pushing back against from the very beginning. But now, chapter 4... It, Chapter 4 begins, and Nebuchadnezzar has done a 180, and he wants the whole world to know about this. This is very strange. He's gone from being a persecutor of the faith to a, uh, to a witness to the faith, a proclaimer of God's sovereign, eternal lordship overall. So what happened? Nebuchadnezzar is going to tell us what happened by means of a flashback. And so we rewind back in time a time where Nebuchadnezzar experiences a dream that causes consternation. A dream that causes consternation. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. This is many years after the events of um, Daniel chapter 3. Maybe 20, 30 years later. 
We're at the peak of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He says, I was at ease in my house. Now that word for ease in the original language carries the idea of contentment and security. He's, he's reached a place in his reign where he can finally feel peace. And he can feel safe. He's living the dream, so to speak. He's prospering in his palace, living in luxury and comfort. There's peace There's prosperity. All of his major enemies have been subdued. There's nobody on the scene to threaten his authority. He's got everything he could possibly want, so now he can finally rest. Or can he? Verse 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies of the visions of my head alarmed me. He was the most powerful man on the planet. At his beck and call was the most powerful army in the world. His wealth could purchase anything that his heart desired. All the pleasures and all the enjoyments and all the entertainments of this world were at his fingertips. But that sense of security and peace and ease is a fragile thing, isn't it? And all it takes is a dream to shake him up. And now this great and mighty king lays in bed staring at the ceiling feeling very vulnerable and afraid. We've seen this before from Nebuchadnezzar. Despite the outward trappings of power and control, once again he's marked by insecurity and fear. He wants to be in control, but he's not. He's a deeply troubled man with no lasting peace in his soul. Isaiah 26 says that The one who is kept in perfect peace is the one whose trust is in God, for the Lord is an everlasting rock, which means that the one who trusts in other things will never enjoy true peace. It's why the most powerful man in the world can be shaken by a dream in the middle of the night. It's why when you read stories of the richest and most powerful people in the world, People who've pursued everything except God, and they've reached the top, and they have lots of money, and they have big houses, and they have abundant possessions, and admiration, and applause, so often you will find that behind the scenes, they're they're not happy. They're fearful. They're depressed. And they are often among the most insecure people in the world. You see, the essence of pride is trying to exist independently of God, to achieve self-sufficiency. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wants. That's what all sinful human beings are chasing after. But it doesn't work. It's like Jeremiah chapter 2, where God is portrayed as a satisfying fountain of living water. And yet sinful, proud people turn away from that and try to satisfy their thirst on their own by drinking sludge water from leaky, broken cisterns. It doesn't work. And the Scriptures constantly warn us that everything that prideful man hopes to achieve, independent of God, happiness, security, stability, peace, all of those hopes in the end disintegrate because we're not created to exist independent of God. That's why Proverbs 10.28 says, The prospect of the righteous is joy, but the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. And deep down, everybody knows this, even kings. That's why Proverbs 10.24 says, What the wicked dreads will come upon him. 
And now it's happening again to Nebuchadnezzar. He thought he had been done with dreams, dreams that had threatened his sense of peace, but he can't get away from reminders of the thing he dreads. Even when he's at the top of the mountain and has it all, he can't get away from this. And so he seeks answers. Verses 6 and 7, he calls in his pagan counselors for an interpretation, and as we've come to expect from them after reading these prior chapters, they continue to be useless. It's no surprise there. Verse 7 says, they could not make known to me his interpretation. Either they they could not or they, I suspect they would not. Uh, The the dream is actually not very hard to, to figure out. The interpretation is given to you in the dream itself. But Nebuchadnezzar has an erratic, explosive temper, and that oven is nearby. And they might be afraid to tell the king something he doesn't want to hear. Now Nebuchadnezzar's at the end of his rope, and he finally turns to the man of God and tells him the dream. It's interesting, you, you may have noticed as we were reading the chapter that Nebuchadnezzar refers to Daniel as a, as a man who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. That's an that's ambiguous uh, translation there in, in the original. That could actually be singular, to actually say the holy God, singular, or gods. And scholars disagree on uh, what exactly is the proper translation, so I would be cautious to read too much into that. He could be speaking out of his pagan background, or he could have come to recognize that the one true God himself is working in Daniel. But he brings Daniel in and tells him the dream. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees this cosmic tree. Verse 10, the visions in my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now, the tree, as an image of the life-giving nature of the king, is actually seen elsewhere in the Bible, but it's also a familiar image in the pagan world, and so this would have been something that Nebuchadnezzar would have picked up on and understood right away. In pagan thought... The the tree is a symbol of the divine world order maintained by the king as a representative of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar would have seen himself in that role as the sovereign keeper of the cosmos. Delusions of grandeur aside, certainly the Babylonian empire did indeed bring a measure of order and stability to the world. And many would have benefited from that order, just as the, the beast of the field and the birds receive life and protection from the tree. Nebuchadnezzar would have been all fine with this beginning part of the dream. But suddenly the dream turns into a nightmare. Verse 13, I saw in the, the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. It's this interesting uh, description there of, of the angelic beings as, as, as watchers. A, f- a few verses later, it's, it's plural. There's more than one. It, it's this, this sense that your life is being watched. You're, you're, there, there's some accountability there, which would have been very unsettling to Nebuchadnezzar, who has run his life unilaterally, thinking that he is in charge and unaccountable. He's not. He's being seen. Everything is being seen. Verse 14 
Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off the leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. Leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. And let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now you can see why Nebuchadnezzar is afraid of the dream and maybe why he put off seeing Daniel until the very end. But he's not the only one disturbed by the dream. As we go to verse 19 now, we see a prophet's loving exhortation. Verse 19 says that Daniel was dismayed and alarmed. So now we have two alarmed people. Nebuchadnezzar is alarmed because he doesn't know what's going on. And Daniel is alarmed because he does know what's going on. He knows that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be stripped of his power. He's going to lose all of the things he's put his hope in. All of that ease and luxury that he has enjoyed, it's going to be gone. He's going to be struck with insanity, living like a beast, eating grass. And Daniel's shock must have been all over his face because look at how Nebuchadnezzar responds. All of a sudden the tables are turned and Nebuchadnezzar now is the, is the counselor. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now that's truly remarkable. I wonder if that stuck out to you like it stuck out to me. Daniel is dismayed and alarmed because he does not want this dreadful judgment to come upon Nebuchadnezzar. He says, let the dream be for somebody else. Let it be for your enemies, not for you. That's remarkable. Let's not forget, Daniel is looking into the eyes of a man who has invaded his homeland, pillaged his people. Daniel's not in Babylon because he wants to be. He's a prisoner of war. He's looking into the eyes of his kidnapper. He's looking into the eyes of a man who almost killed him along with the rest of the king's servants. He's looking into the eyes of a man who threw his three friends into a blazing hot oven, hoping to see the flesh peel off of their bones. And this is the man who over and over and over again has shaken his fist at God in defiance, scoffing at God's revelation and regarding himself as supreme over all the gods. And when Daniel contemplates the judgment that's to come upon this evil man, he doesn't proclaim it to Nebuchadnezzar with glee. He's not happy about it. He's not laughing about it. He's not making light of it. Yeah, serves you right, Nebuchadnezzar. You throw my friends into an oven, I hope you eat grass for the rest of your life. I hope worse happens to you. Daniel doesn't respond that way. He has compassion for Nebuchadnezzar. His heart grieves for him. He doesn't want him to face what's coming. Think about this. Imagine if ISIS came to America and ravaged our land and kidnapped you 
and took you to Syria or wherever, and they changed your name and made you learn their language and forced you to serve their maniacal, murderous leader, would you have compassion for him? How would you respond to a message of God's judgment upon him? Would that make you giddy? Would you be like Jonah, who went to deliver a message of judgment to the evil, cruel Ninevites and then sat on the outskirts of the city like like he had a box seat to enjoy the entertainment of watching them be vaporized by God? Or would you be like Christ, who said, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors, who while approaching a city full of people who would soon demand his death, nailing him to a tree, and yet he weeps out for the people. He cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Will we be like Christ who, as he's hanging from the cross, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Daniel is standing there in front of Nebuchadnezzar. He's been in the service of this man against his will for 20, 30 years by this time. But he's grown to love this man. And his heart breaks for the king. But loving someone doesn't just mean feeling bad for their lost condition and impending judgment. Loving someone also means calling them to the truth. Daniel speaks the truth in love, and he doesn't hold back. He interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. He warns of the coming judgment, and he calls him to repentance. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. To love the sinner doesn't just mean to feeling bad for the sinner, but to call him to repentance. Daniel doesn't simply say, well, listen, God loves you as you are, so don't worry about how you live. That's how many people talk today. No, no, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. He, he doesn't just tell Nebuchadnezzar, hey, just, just believe in God, say a little prayer, and you'll be fine. That's the message of many churches today. Folks, Nebuchadnezzar already believed in God. He's already acknowledged certain truths about God in the prior chapters. But he has yet to truly bend the knee to God and submit to Him as the sovereign Lord of his life because Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar's whole life, it's been a battle between two kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar has been all about his kingdom, his plans, his desires, his agenda. He's okay with God as long as God lets Nebuchadnezzar have his way. And that's how many people are today. Most people don't disbelieve in God, and many people actually would acknowledge Jesus Christ with their lips. Many people would claim Jesus as their own, and some may even say outwardly he's their Lord. But Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, Jesus will say to such people, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, you have people who in some sense have accepted Jesus, but in the end, Jesus does not accept them. He rejects them because they have not done God's will and they have instead been workers of lawlessness, of sin. 
Now, the Bible from start to finish affirms that we are saved by faith through grace and not by our works. But the Bible also affirms consistently that genuine faith in God produces repentance. And so James writes later on in James chapter 2, You believe in God? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. A vague, generic belief that goes no further than mental assent is not saving faith. And so James writes a few verses later, As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so to call someone to repentance is actually a part of what it means to call someone to saving faith. And here in Daniel 4, Daniel is calling this pagan king to faith and repentance. And while the king is shaken for a time, Nebuchadnezzar falls back into spiritual lethargy. And in his pride, he stiff-arms God again. And so the story continues into verse 28 to a later time, a year later, And here we find Nebuchadnezzar enjoying the peaks of self-exaltation. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. Now stop there. Notice the grace of God here. God has borne with this man's foolishness for decades. Then he warns him uh, in a dream. And you'd think maybe God would give him 24 hours or something to get his act together. He doesn't. He gives him a year. God is being kind and patient to a man who does not deserve kindness and patience. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul asks, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's two responses to God's kindness and patience. Repentance or presumption. And Nebuchadnezzar isn't repenting. He's falling back into hard-heartedness. In fact, he's worse than ever. Verse 29, again, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar has reached heights of power and glory that no single individual had ever achieved up until that point. His army was the most powerful in the world. He possessed wealth untold. He had at least three palaces. Babylon was immense. It was protected by thick double walls. One of those walls 21 feet thick probably around 40 feet high, reinforced with defense towers everywhere. The Euphrates River that ran through the city was spanned by a 400-foot bridge that connected both halves of Babylon. Fifty-three temples were within its walls, among them the Temple of Marduk, which was a massive seven-level ziggurat, 288 feet high. And among the greatest of Nebuchadnezzar's achievements, you probably heard of it, the Hanging Gardens which had become known as one of the seven wonders of the world. Which you, which you may not know is that he constructed these gardens for his wife. His wife who had left the mountains of her native media for the plains of Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar builds her a mountain. Now that's showing up us husbands, isn't it? He builds her a mountain in the city. 
to remind his wife of her homeland in this Mountain consisted of elevated gardens so high they could be seen beyond the city walls. Babylon was the greatest city in the world. And so now, Nebuchadnezzar's on the roof of one of these palaces, maybe in the hanging gardens itself, for it would be there he could command a view of the vastness of Babylon. He's the master of all he sees. He's achieved his loftiest dreams. This is as proud as he's ever been. Verse 29, is this not great Babylon, which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. What a majestic moment, like a dream that now turns into a nightmare, which takes the king into the valley of humiliation. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And all these things that God has predicted comes to pass. You look down at the uh, verse 33. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till the hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. God struck Nebuchadnezzar with this strange mental condition. He strips everything away from him, his throne, his power, his wealth, his pleasures, even his mind. And so we see a very striking illustration of the Scripture that says God opposes the proud. He strikes Nebuchadnezzar down, and he becomes outwardly what he was always inwardly, a raging brute beast against God. Now some might say, well, that's pretty harsh. Actually, we need to regard this as grace. It's grace because We're so proud that unless God deals our pride a heavy blow, we will not come to Him. Sometimes we lean so much on our money, our possessions, our accomplishments, our physical health, our comforts, and other things that God must strip away all those things before we realize our need for Him. Psalm chapter 10 says that in the pride of His face... The wicked does not seek God. His ways prosper at all times. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. You see, the proud man thinks he is self-sufficient, and so he doesn't need God. Therefore, if man is to have any hope, God must remove all of the things that contributes to his sense of self-sufficiency. Nebuchadnezzar, who boasted in the building of Babylon, needed to learn the lesson of Psalm 127 that says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who built it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so everything is taken from Nebuchadnezzar to show him that everything he had and everything he has enjoyed is because of God's goodness and kindness, not Nebuchadnezzar's greatness. God rules... God reigns, God is Lord, not Nebuchadnezzar. He, he afflicts Nebuchadnezzar, but it's grace. Job chapter 36 says, If they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then God declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. In other words, the affliction helps us to hear what God is saying. As C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasure and shouts in our pain. 
Pain is God's megaphone in the world. I don't pretend to know what God is doing in your life. God is working in different ways in the lives of different people in this congregation. But regardless of the specific details, one thing I know is that if you are in Christ, everything that is coming from His hand towards you this morning is grace, even the difficult things. So it's worth prayerfully pondering what might God be saying to you right now in your difficult circumstances, in your trials? What grace might He be showing you? In Nebuchadnezzar's case, we know that if God does not humble this proud man, he will remain in an attitude of spiritual independence and self-reliance, which is spiritual suicide. Better to be laid low and eat grass for seven years than to enjoy the life of a paranoid pagan king for a few more years, die, and then go to hell for the next trillion years and beyond because because he would not humble himself and joyfully submit to and trust him, the king of the universe. I'll take eating grass for seven years over that any day. The humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar is the pathway to something better. God brings Nebuchadnezzar low, not to destroy him, but save him, which leads us now to the path of restoration, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven... And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. He lifts up His eyes. Where? To heaven. Where were His eyes before? On Babylon. On His achievements. On His success. On His power. On His glory. On Himself. And it was all empty. He had constructed a false reality and a false universe with himself at the center. And it never gave him true peace. It never truly satisfied him. It never fully dealt with the fear, the insecurity, the uncertainty. The the result was insanity. It's only when he turns to God and looks to Him that he begins to see reality as it really is. And that's how it works for all of us. Our vision is always warped when we are looking at other things, looking at our circumstances, looking at the people who we're afraid of, looking at the problems coming our way every day, it can drive us insane. The psalmist says in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven, and he begins to know peace, and he sings this song in verse 34. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Okay, that's monumental what he just said. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, including Nebuchadnezzar. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This man had been fighting this idea his whole life of the dominion and sovereignty of God. And now he's singing hymns about it, celebrating God's dominion. A revelation of the total sovereignty of God is what brings him peace. 
Now, I've heard it said that the, the sovereignty of God is the soft pillow that the people of God can lay their heads on at night and rest, knowing that a good and wise God governs and controls all things for the benefit of His people. And that's a message that Daniel's original audience, those Jewish exiles, needed to know. And now these, these exiled people are, are seeing the man who had put them into captivity in the first place humbled by God, and even he is under God's dominion. Nebuchadnezzar singing hymns about the sovereignty of God. That's, that's grace. And so finally we see that Nebuchadnezzar experiences the joy of God's exaltation. He says, At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Look at that word, added. You see, now he sees this as a gift. He says this is added to me. He's not boasting about himself and about his greatness. And he's recognizing that the things that he has and the things that he enjoys, all of it is sovereign grace being poured out upon him. He says, I'm accounted as nothing, and yet here I am. Even this is added to me. I don't deserve it. That's the, the sense here. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol And honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. Hear the significance of that admission. For all his works are right, and all of his ways are just. In other words, he put me on the ground eating grass like a beast, and he was right to do it. He's thankful for his affliction because it rescued him from the suicidal insanity of vain pride and opened his eyes to the reality of the God who reigns. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer fighting this. The thought of God's sovereign and supreme reign and his control over the world used to anger and offend and terrify Nebuchadnezzar. Now he exults in it and it brings him an overflow of joy. But he had to be stripped of all pretense of self-sufficiency and independence before he was rescued. That's exactly how God works right now. And there is nothing that strips our self-sufficiency and prideful arrogance like what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible tells a story of another king with wealth and power and glory infinitely greater than Nebuchadnezzar or any other king. And unlike any earthly king, Jesus is perfectly innocent and holy. And while Nebuchadnezzar sought to be God and failed, Jesus already is God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And though Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God, Jesus humbled himself willingly. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be served... Jesus took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and humbled himself. Nebuchadnezzar feared death, but Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation doesn't have the power to save anybody. Jesus's does. Because on the cross, Jesus suffers God's wrath as a substitute for proud, selfish, rebel tyrants like Nebuchadnezzar and like you and me. Paying the price for sin. The cross humbles us because it tells us that we deserve what Jesus got. We deserve Jesus' wrath, and we cannot save ourselves. Self-sufficiency must go out the window. But the good news is that all who now humble themselves and confess that they are a helpless sinner, receiving Jesus' payment for sins by faith, confessing that Jesus is the one and only sovereign Lord, demonstrating their faith by repenting of their sins and following after Him as Lord, all who humbly come to Jesus in this way will be saved from the eternal judgment of hell with the promise of ever-increasing joy starting now and going on into eternity. And we who have, like Nebuchadnezzar, joyfully embraced the reality that God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will, we look forward to the day where that kingship will be visibly manifest everywhere. That great day described in Revelation 11, where the angel blows the trumpet and the announcement is made that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The great day described in Philippians 2, that says God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says every knee, every knee will bow. That's where all of this is headed, folks. So you can gladly and willingly bend that knee now, receiving God's grace and everlasting life and joy, or you can in your pride resist the king and at the end of the age be forced to bow and receive judgment. But that final day has not yet come, which means today is the day of salvation. Because while God opposes the proud, He gives amazing grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, your will be done in our hearts. Father, I pray for everybody in this room that you would help us to grow in humility and to cast off pride. Even those of us who are believers still struggle with this tendency to exalt ourselves, to want to be in the center, to want to be noticed, to want to be applauded, to want to make it all about us. We're still learning how it's all about you, and we're still learning how that actually is good and glorious news. And Father, I pray for those who have come into this place this morning unbelieving, that they may joyfully and willfully submit to you and receive the gift of salvation by faith, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the work that He has done, and enjoy forgiveness of sins and everlasting life and true peace. Let it be so. 
In Jesus' name, amen.